The Junior Chamber of Commerce began a house-to-house campaign. The Outline World Dispatch. Tuesday, April 25th, 2017. I'm John Lago Marcino. Today, Roland Bishop on the OK hand symbol. You know the one. Index finger and thumb in a circle, other fingers pointing up. Andy Martino on whether Facebook is eavesdropping. Uh, but I got Facebook on the record again to update that denial. And Kelsey McKinney on saxophones. Like the rise of Kenny G. He has probably the best Twitter feed of any saxophonist ever. Here's the dispatch. Culture. An employee at the outline was recently gifted a white baseball cap that featured a hand making the OK sign. You know the one. Index finger and thumb in a circle, other fingers pointing up. But once he started wearing the hat, he began to notice things that suggested maybe the hand sign had a political association. Alt-right hero Milo Yiannopoulos likes to pose with it. Jim Hoft and Lucian Wintrich of the conservative blog The Gateway Pundit posed with it in the White House press room. Finally, after a friend asked, Why do you have a hat with the hand symbol that Trump always makes when he's talking? He stopped wearing the hat. Symbols have no inherent meaning. They are imbued with it. In 2016, the cartoon Pepe the Frog was infamously adopted by Trump supporters and white supremacists. Pepe's creator, Matt Fury, was saddened to see that the cartoon had been co-opted to the point that the Anti-Defamation League labeled it a hate symbol. The OK gesture has a much longer history than Pepe, but even it is context-dependent. In some countries, including the US, it has a positive connotation. It's unclear exactly how the OK sign got started as an alt-right meme, but it may trace back to a version of Smug Pepe, a meme in which Pepe holds his chin. In one variation, he's instead making an OK hand gesture, reminiscent of how Trump sometimes absent-mindedly makes a similar gesture during speeches. This specific Pepe started circulating in online communities of alt-right and Trump supporters in early 2015. That's according to Don Caldwell, a senior editor at Know Your Meme. Around that time, you know, uh, Trump supporters seem to circulate these uh, Trump-like depictions of Pepe. And then Donald Trump himself, around October, mid-October, tweeted one of them. Lauren Southern, a popular alt-right conservative who first came to prominence in 2015 for provoking feminists, told me by email, quote, We just say, do the thing, and everyone knows what you're talking about. To further complicate matters, Pizza Party Ben, an alt-right Trump supporter himself, may have had a hand in popularizing the hand signal. Pizza Party Ben had a fairly prolific Twitter with around 72,000 followers up until he was suspended in March, and he used the gesture as a calling card of sorts. While the exact source and reason might be up for debate, it's all over alt-right circles. Malik Obama, Barack Obama's half-brother and alt-right obsessive, tweeted a photo of himself making the OK hand sign with a direct reference to Pepe. White nationalist Richard Spencer posted a photo of himself making the sign the night of the election. Once a symbol has been appropriated by a hate group or even just a polarizing political collective, that association can be very difficult to shake. The OK hand gesture might be associated with some troubling, hateful viewpoints, but it's certainly not as far gone as, say, the swastika. For example, you know, I don't think anybody's going to accuse, um, um, you know, any user of Facebook for posting a picture of their wife or husband after, you know, giving birth to it into a child and giving the OK symbol as, as, you know, propagating racist messaging. That's Ryan Linz, a senior investigative reporter at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Let's presume, for the sake of argument, let's say that we have a politician, okay, 
whose policies are, are overtly racist, overtly anti-Semitic, overtly anti-immigrant, or whatever they may be. Um, and this symbol, um, this OK hand symbol, then becomes something that is like a rallying cry. Like there are auditoriums and, and, and amphitheaters filled with people throwing up the OK symbol. Then I think the symbol is lost. You know, I mean, the symbol becomes on par with, you know, with the Nazi Sieg Heil. But we're not at that point, or arguably anywhere near close. The OK symbol hasn't been completely co-opted by any one group for any one purpose. At best, there's a whole series of competing meanings for the gesture, some worse than others. For now, OK can still be OK. The future. Last May, a viral news story led people to believe that the Facebook app was surreptitiously eavesdropping on users' conversations in order to serve targeted ads. People on the internet had a field day. Okay, so this phone is my wife's, and um, we think Facebook is listening to us and then putting in suggested ads. So if I'm on Facebook in my, let's say, kitchen, and my daughter leaves a dirty dish on the sink, and I'm like, blah, 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 clickety, clickety, post it, live, favorite, whatever. Hey, clean up that dish. Facebook records it? I think a lot of it is very sketchy. Facebook, you guys are listening to us, and that's messed up. I don't know if that's okay, guys. Now, Facebook vehemently denied these claims. Outline writer Andy Martino followed up on that story this week, and it turns out the rumor persists. Hey, Andy. Hi, John. So, uh, you wrote today about this thing where people think that Facebook is listening to them and using what it's hearing to serve ads. Is there anything to this? Well, Facebook strongly denies it. Uh, They went on record in June of 2016 saying that absolutely we do not listen to your conversations, store your conversations, use that for advertising. And Facebook says that that applies to all their apps, Messenger, Instagram, WhatsApp. And that statement is so definitive that if Facebook were actually listening, they'd be taking an awfully big gamble by lying that bluntly. Yeah, what's the allegation? Yeah, right. The allegation is so many people who have these anecdotal stories where they say, my phone was on the table, I was talking about, in the case of a young woman named Alyssa Werbler, who's featured in our story, who said I was talking about, she's a little embarrassed, blackhead removal at dinner with a friend. And then a couple hours later, there was an ad for blackhead removal on her Facebook, and she was sure that she never Googled it or searched it or anything. Uh, But I got Facebook on the record again to update that denial, and they continue to deny that this is something that they do. So basically, we have a gap between a rumor and Facebook's very strong statement saying that the rumors are untrue. But the theme of our story is the suspicion persists. And I think, John, that that says something about how we're very anxious about online privacy, whatever the reality is here. Sure, yeah. Um, And you spoke to an expert about this, correct? I did. A professor at the University of South Florida named Kelly Burns, who is not just any expert. She actually started this whole thing because she went on uh, local news in Florida last year and conducted which she considered a really lighthearted, unscientific experiment. A local, local TV reporter came to her office. She said, hey, I'd like to go on a safari. Less than 60 seconds after USF professor Kelly Burns talked about an adventure in Africa, the top post on her feed, yep, you guessed it. A safari story popped out of nowhere. Remember how she mentioned riding in a Jeep? A car ad also showed up. The problem with that was that Kelly Burns was not alleging that. 
She had not researched it thoroughly <laughs> enough to say this. And she was basically taken out of context, if not misquoted. So we spoke at length with her. I honestly believe that. I do not think that Facebook is listening to you through mm-hmm. the phone. But I think we don't fully understand the extent to which they have access to information about us, that behind the scenes that they might be linking information. Facebook is in our lives in so many ways that we can't wrap our minds around that this seems plausible to us, even though it's probably not exactly what they do. So (laughs) Facebook denies it really strongly, uh, and yet these stories persist. I mean, it seems to me like you've got so many people using Facebook's app that of course there are going to be moments where conversations happen and then a couple hours later you get an ad just by coincidence Mm -hmm. for the thing that you were talking about, right? Has Facebook said anything about that? Just like the statistical probability that like, yeah, there these, these coincidences just happen in life. See, I think they could have cleared this up easier if they had. I asked Facebook (laughs) spokesperson directly I I laid out the scenario of the blackhead removal uh, anecdote and said, could you please explain to me, just lay out for me and our readers, how this might happen? And I did not get a response to that email. I just got the blanket denial. So there wasn't like, oh, here's what it could have been. Now, obviously, it's our job to look a little deeper into it. And there's plenty that Facebook is doing that's borderline in terms of privacy. So if you want to know what they know, good luck finding it out. And that's a problem. Okay, thanks, Andy. Okay, yeah. There's no song in the Billboard Top 40 right now with a saxophone solo in it. In fact, there's hardly a defined saxophone part on any of those songs at all. And that's kind of incredible, because for most of American popular music's history, the saxophone was a staple. Hi, Kelsey. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Kelsey McKinney has been looking into how American popular music lost its sax. So, saxophones. Uh, Tell me about saxophones and the top 40 right now. Yeah, so in 2017, they're currently in the top 40. There aren't any saxophone songs, which is kind of strange because we have seen some in the past like five or six years. So in your piece, you talk a little bit about how from very early in American pop music, pretty much through the 80s, you, you couldn't have a hit without the saxophone. Um, let's talk a little bit about what changed in the 80s. So when you think about the 80s in popular music, we think like Michael Jackson and Madonna. Like those are the two biggest things. And so even though in the 80s we have like the rise of Kenny G, who's maybe the most popular, most like popular culture saxophonist, he has probably the best Twitter feed of any saxophonist ever. Um, (laughs) But so even though we see Kenny G get really popular in the 80s, what we see in American popular music is this kind of shift in the landscape to be much more focused on individuals with a star as big as Michael Jackson. You don't want to overwhelm him with a ton of instruments up there on stage with him. And the problem with the saxophone is not only is it like loud and kind of abrasive and very, you can pick it out super easily. It's also very visually appealing and weird. It's shiny and like curvy and strange. And so as popular music veered toward individuals, the saxophone kind of had no place on the stage anymore. 
But the eighties were also the time of, of like careless whisper. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so, so how do you account for that? Yeah. So it's, it's, I think in the eighties we start to see, and the historians I talked to said this too, in the eighties, we start to see the sax becoming more of a gimmick and less of a standard. So if you think mm. about rock and roll as a genre, a lot of rock and roll bands had a saxophonist on their, like on their team. But in the eighties, as like pop music veers toward individualism, the saxophone also kind of becomes its own person kind of. And so it gets, it gets like stranger and weirder and much more gimmicky. So if you think about like careless whisper or even smooth operator, those two songs are like the biggest songs of the eighties, but we remember them because they were some of the only songs in the eighties with huge saxophones. And now it sounds like the saxophone is being used in a different way from how it was used in the past. Yeah, yeah. So I talked to a, I talked to several saxophone players and saxophone historians, and what they said is they think that a lot of this is actually financial. So the existence of the saxophone until probably the seventies was kind of as its own piece of the puzzle. The Pink Panther has this this specific piece of saxophone in it. And now what we're seeing is the saxophone as just kind of like a looping play. So it part of that has to do with the development of electronic music. But if you think about like Ariana Grande's problem, that's not a song that a saxophonist is playing the whole time. It's a song that a saxophonist maybe played four bars of and then on a computer they just set it to repeat over and over again and so that creates kind of a different sound in what you're consuming so if the saxophone is on the decline in part because of economics do you get Mm. the impression that the audience would be receptive to more uh saxophone i don't know i mean i think when i think about the top 40 right now it's hard for me to see exactly where it would fit because if you think about like a chain smokers song, there's no way that a saxophone could even fit into that style of music. And so it's not only the saxophone that we see getting cut, cut out of this equation. It's a, it's most woodwinds. We don't see like clarinets, for example, in any popular music. But the difference is that we used to see a lot of saxophones and now suddenly we don't. Kelsey, thanks. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> And this concludes The Dispatch. I'm John Lago Marcino. Till tomorrow.